does success in becoming a psychologist go beyond skill development, especially for people of color? What are the ingredients to consider that can facilitate the path to become a psychologist? And once we are there, what is next? How can we embrace, celebrate, and truly appreciate the strength and resilience of our journey? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Sun. We have Dr. Madore as our guest today. She is a clinical neuropsychologist at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System and serves as a director of the National Clinical Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation Program. Dr. Madore is also a clinical assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine's Department in Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, is the co-director of the Sierra Pacific Mental Illness Research, Education, and Clinical Center Advanced Fellowship at VA Palo Alto, and recently published a paper on future directions in neuropsychology training, education, clinical practice, and advocacy for Asian and Asian Americans. In addition to her multiple career roles, Dr. Madore has also served in professional roles, including past treasurer for the Asian Neuropsychological Association and past finance co-officer for the Asian American Psychological Association. As a biracial psychologist, Dr. Madore will be speaking with us about understanding how opportunities, growth, and skill development as professionals go above and beyond what we know, and sometimes it is about who we know. Moreover, it is also about how we present ourselves to increase who we know. Dr. Madore, thank you so much for joining us today. And I know since you are at the VA, we discussed how you needed to provide a disclaimer before we get into your origin story. Sure. The information that I share today uh, does not represent the views of the United States government or the Department of Veterans Affairs. All views expressed are my own. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you got into this work? So I am a first generation a college student in my immediate family. I also obviously was the first one after that to go on to graduate school. So it was actually very challenging to figure out what I needed to do to become a psychologist. I, after I finished my bachelor's, I actually worked for a little bit before going on to graduate school. I got a job right out of college as a receptionist for a home builder. And that was interesting. It lasted two months before they realized I was too smart to be the receptionist. And that's their words. So they promoted me to do more kind of administrative things for the company dealing with building the home. So I then learned about how to pull building permits and get plans approved and things like that. After about 10 months on the job, I started to get bored mm -hmm. and realized that I really did want to become a psychologist and I needed to figure out how, mm -hmm. but I didn't know anybody who could help me. So I applied to both doctoral programs and master's programs. And in that first round got rejected from every single program except for Cal State Northridge. Oh, wow. And so I got a master's degree first 
before going on to get my doctoral degree at the University of Cincinnati. And I had a wonderful mentor, Dr. Jill Rosani, who helped me understand what I needed to move on to the next step. And I still tell her when I see her at conferences, I thank her every single time I see her for her mentorship and her guidance because I literally would not be where I am today if I did not have her mentorship and her help. So it really does speak to the huge power and influence for mentors to walk us through to really help us grow. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you're talking about a, what's the word I'm looking for, some more of a contextual support than it is a skill support. Because oftentimes when we're thinking about developing as a psychologist, sometimes it's about a hyper focus on skills. Am I good at statistics? Am I good at this thing? But you're actually shifting that focus into something else. Yeah, those things are very important. You cannot be a good consumer of research and understanding advances in our field without knowing statistics, right? You can't be a good researcher, provider, clinician without practicing skills and embarking on that journey. But sometimes you can't even get to that journey, right? Without some support or navigate that journey without support or knowledge from someone who kind of helps you understand what the next step is to be successful. Like mm -hmm. I did not know I should go to conferences and meet with potential mentors for doctoral programs. I had no idea. That would have never crossed my mind at that point in my career that a social interaction with a stranger could increase the likelihood that I would get into graduate school. How did you go about deciding who might be a potential mentor? So that that part is is much more challenging. And I'm really lucky that I had my graduate school guide, if you will. Uh -huh. And really, you know, when you're applying to school, there are two things that you're looking for, right? One, does this school have interests similar to mine? Do they train people in content areas that I want to gain knowledge in because it'll contribute to who I want to be as a professional? But the other part that they don't really tell you about or talk a lot about is what is what are those interactions with the people at that institution like? What are the quality of those interactions? Do those people understand who I am? as a human, like as a cultural being, as someone who exists in society, that's equally as important. If you think about the pipeline of psychologists, we often lose trainees and potential professionals of color because these experiences that they have in graduate school may be negative and invalidating of who they are as a person. And this happens across the spectrum of training, not just while a person is, is in school. Let's say they have the resilience to get through that and they make it to internship and they make it to fellowship. Some of those negative experiences perpetuate or manifest in a slightly different way. And we lose individuals along the pipeline 
because we forget that it is okay to find an institution that isn't just, oh, they're a great name and I'm gonna get so much professional development from there. I'm gonna learn so much from X name location. But in the interview process, I ask them questions about what it's like to be there, what that organizational culture is, what those people are like, because they're the ones who are supposed to teach us and provide us with support. That was something I didn't really do. And I was very lucky that I didn't consciously do it. Mm. But I was very lucky where I did get into graduate school. There were some amazing faculty that were supportive. So I lucked out. Mm. As mm. I get to the other side, I regularly interact with students that weren't so lucky. Yeah. And something we've talked about prior to the recording is that you've actually now done a lot of mentoring yourself. Yeah. You make yourself available and you're really mentoring a lot of students of color. And you've talked about this pipeline experience. And uh, so you published a paper in March 2023 titled Future Directions in Neuropsychology, Training, Education, Clinical Practice, and Advocacy for Asians and Asian Americans. What prompted that study? So I was part of the Asian Neuropsychological Association board, and there was a special issue coming out in one of the neuropsychology journals. And we were discussing this exact concern of pipeline issues, but not just issues in the context of diversifying the field, but also the field's inability to actually serve diverse Asian populations. The stereotype for your average provider is that there are Asian Americans and other people, forgetting that Asia, <laughs> Asian Americans and cult encompasses so many different peoples. And not only that, it is different languages, different cultures, different geographic regions with different climates and different values and different religions. But they've been historically clumping them all together. Oh, they're Asians. I just need Asian norms. Hmm. No, it's not that simple. And so we thought as a group of co-authors that this would be a really important piece to write and put out there to help individuals understand that Asian is not a monolith. It's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the different language is, is such a huge component. Now, uh, I'm also curious, you do a lot of neuropsych evaluations. Can you share with me your observations and the importance of how language may play a role in maybe certain specific neuropsych tests? Sure, absolutely. I'm would be happy to go through an example. So if you think about the development of any test, right, it occurs in the context of a culture, right? The United States, we primarily speak English. We are developing tests in English. We are getting information called normative data about how a person should perform on that test using English. The United States 
as we know, it's increasingly diverse as time is passing. And by 2050, the, the balance of individuals is expected to change. Now, people may in their homes speak English, they may speak another language, they may have a different primary language that they utilize versus what this test was normed on. Yet we continue to do things like, I'm gonna see what your language proficiency is, or I'm gonna assess an older adult using a naming test, for example, like the Boston naming test, to see you know, how well is your confrontation naming a skill that is very well assessed and established to be impaired in individuals with Alzheimer's disease, for example, using a test that may not be necessarily appropriate. Some of these tests are timed. If English is not your first language and you see an object and you need to name that object and you think of that language, that object in your native language first before translating it, if you will, into English to be able to tell the examiner what it is, that takes time. If the test is timed, you're being penalized. If you don't get that answer to the person, the examiner, in that appropriate amount of time, or you may not actually have a word for that object that corresponds to the English version of it. And so, people say, oh, we're aware of that and we take that into consideration. Hopefully they are, but maybe not everyone is doing that. And so being able to, when possible, assess someone in their native language using a test for their, in their native language is ideal, but not always practical or possible because those things may not be available so then what is the next best thing for that individual? What can we do instead? And we really need to be thoughtful about what does that look like, right? There are so many different approaches to that. People have proposed, well, I'll translate the test. Well, to appropriately translate a test, that is a long process. You don't just forward translate it into that person's language. You then now need to take that test to a native speaker who is bilingual in English and see, can they backward translate it? And does that backwards translation, for example, match the, the original version, right? And then you have the issues of norms. How do I know that people from who speak this language with these demographic variables perform? I now need to compare them to just the norms that I have because I don't have time to get the appropriate comparison data for that group. Is there a cognitive disorder? And then make sure, or even a mental health condition, understand if I diagnose this, will I be stigmatizing this individual? What is the appropriate way to frame what is happening for this person and make culturally appropriate recommendations that are consistent with how this person lives? So that number one, I'm not just worried about whether or not I offend them. A lot of people jump to that psychology. These recommendations are made in the context of preserving someone's cognitive abilities. 
So if I'm making a recommendation to either see another doctor or engage in a certain activity, right? It, does that match that person's culture? Do they have family members, if that's appropriate, to go to these other appointments? Do they have a support system and means to achieve and do these activities that I've recommended? You know, we think about, you know, language and appropriateness of testing and recommendations, but people are entire packages. There are so many things, their experiences, they are their culture, they are more than just, okay, I'm following this checklist and asking these questions mm -hmm. and saying, oh, do this, do that. But maybe this or that is not appropriate for them. And I need to work with them to figure out what's close enough to this or close enough to that to help them live independently, preserve their cognition, be the whole human mm -hmm. that they are. Yeah. So as you're describing this, it's really highlighting the complexities and the level of detail in each step of the process. Oftentimes, when we think of testing, we get... Um, a result, a number, a norm. Rarely do we think every step from maybe uh, just the beginning, the receiving, the administration yeah. piece, yeah. Uh, what that means during the administration piece. Also, you know, we also talk about recommendations. You make culturally, you know, relevant recommendations, but what, what does that even look like? Is this person going to follow through with it? What are the barriers at play? Is this something that they would even want to do? Is it salient for yeah. them? Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to go back to your main message here, which is yeah. speaking about, I guess, the professional networking and some of the challenges that folks have. I mean, we aren't always socialized to put ourselves in the spotlight or to even talk about our successes or accomplishments. And part of networking and growing the base of individuals of who you know involves being able to describe some of the cool and neat things that you were doing. And I would bet that everyone listening is doing something neat and cool, right? Something that is interesting, something that is benefiting someone, but we do it because we love it. And so we just do it. That's where I find myself a lot. Well, I, I teach providers about transcranial magnetic simulation and how to do it. And, that, and I just do it. And then I listen to myself say that. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Who does that? Oh, that's me. Right? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, right? And, and we don't give ourselves credit for these really neat and cool things we do. And we don't talk about it. We don't always share it. Now, there is obviously a a westernized tactful way to do it to help us network right but sometimes it's just about having a conversation and meeting people and if we're uncomfortable with that how do we get across that barrier right what do we do what can we do you know sometimes it's easier to do these things in groups right so i have and I think I still do this to this day, go to like social events and network with a buddy, like I'll go by myself because mm -hmm. it feels less intimidating to go with a friend or colleague versus just going to like a large social situation by myself. And I'm not 
most people who know me would describe me as a pretty social human. But I still don't want to go by myself, right? Practicing, like people talk about elevator speeches. What can you say about yourself in 15 seconds that's like succinct but describes, you know, what you do, what you study, or what you're interested in, right? Trying to find creative, succinct, fun ways to describe the amazing things that you're doing and sharing it with people and finding other people who also find that interesting. And so what are those situations? You know, where, where do we do this? So going back to graduate school, there's that, oh, emailing. I'm going to cold email someone. That's great. Be very clear in your message when you're applying to graduate school. Are you taking any students? I see that you're interested in this. I'm also interested in this. Would love to talk. Done. Right? It's understanding how much information to share, right? You're at a social event or you're at a conference, go to the social events, right? Not only do they often have free food, but there are lots a mix of people, right? There are professionals, there are other trainees. Meet other trainees or aspiring trainees. Ask to meet their mentors. Introduce them to your mentor if it's at the conference, right? And understanding one mentor may not always be enough. We have our mentor in our program that help us navigate the program and be successful at that institution. But you're not going to be there forever. You eventually want to be able to practice independently. You are going to have to get, if you're in clinical or counseling or even school psychology, you have to get an internship and eventually a fellowship, right? Meet other humans. And you don't have to have a, oh, I have this one person who is my long-term mentor forever and ever. That is great. But getting different opinions about the same topic from several people. Anyone that I've ever mentored, I hope I remember to always communicate. I try to communicate. Yes, I have an opinion and I know things and I know people, but I don't know all things and I don't know all people. So you should ask somebody else the same thing you just asked me and then compare that and figure out which advice sits best for you, what matches how you function as a person. But ask people and take advantage of the people who do say they're willing to mentor or willing to meet with you or willing to talk with you. Like Take those opportunities. There are lots of identity-based organizations in our field that offer mentorship programs. Sign up. You never know who you're going to get to meet. They may be interviewing you one day for an internship or a fellowship. They may be doing something really cool. And because you already met with them once in the situation, you will feel more comfortable because you already know them. It is weird to put yourself out there, at least for me it is, mm. but it's worth it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Putting ourselves out there. I think that's something that a lot of, when I was doing the AAPI series, a lot of folks were talking about the the intersection of culturally, most Asian folks, you know, we're not taught to talk about ourselves. Yeah. We want to 
talk about other people and their accomplishments and how um, they've done a lot of good work, but you really need to practice some humility. So maybe uh, putting you on the spot here and you don't have to answer. I am actually curious because I, I love it when people enjoy talking about what they're really fascinated about. So you mentioned how hearing yourself talk about doing transcranial magnetic stimulation is such cool work. Can you tell us what about that work is cool for you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to call it TMS because it is much easier to say. Yes. <laughs> the whole mouthful. So TMS. What Number one, TMS is such an interesting tool. If you think about it, you are using magnetic waves to get neurons to fire, right? So when you are trying to figure out how much strength is needed in a, for the magnetic field to be produced, for example, to get someone's thumb to twitch, which is one of the very first steps. I'm using a magnet to stimulate someone's brain to say, hey, neurons, fire, and get this person to wiggle their fingers. <laughs> in the nerdiest way possible, I feel like this is very cool. And as a technology, using this to help alleviate someone's mental health symptoms, make their depression better, and in some cases, completely remit when combinations of medication and therapy and all the other things that they've tried didn't work we have this thing, this technology that can work. Sadly, like all things, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It does not work for every single human. But I have seen people look totally different after several sessions, where their first few sessions, they lethargic, they just, they look depressed, right? We've seen those those patients that come in and you can feel the aura of their sadness, yes. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I feel sad. And then get several sessions of TMS and improve for their chipper, lighthearted, talking about things that they want to go do. And you're like, this is not this the same person. human. Yeah. Yeah. And that is one of the, the things I love about this as a treatment. You don't have to wait the three months, six to eight weeks that it takes for a medication to get to its therapeutic dose. People are getting better in like, and again, it's not every human, but people are getting better in like days, weeks, mm. not months. Mm. Now, are there any, are there maintenance sessions so the field doesn't know exactly what is absolutely needed with their respect to what they call preservation TMS. So does someone have to come in every month? Does someone need to come in every week after they finish that first acute course? The science has not told us exactly what that is yet. Anecdotally, there are several people across different clinics across the United States who do come in for like a regular monthly session or a quarterly session, or they'll come in for a week every year or something to help keep them in remission. We just don't know exactly what the best approach is, but people are trying all approaches to keep humans better. Okay. 
Okay. Out of curiosity, have you noticed any differences in response based on either race, gender, or any diversity categories? Yeah. So I can say that sadly, a lot of the clinical trials do not have diverse individuals, right? So if you look at the, the literature, it's mostly, you know, white folks that have been white, middle-aged, middle-class, like upper-class individuals. And I'm hoping that we're able to take a closer look at some diversity-related factors. So there are two different studies that I am a site PI for. One is looking at fMRI biomarkers of treatment response, and another one is EEG. And we've been really pushing hard to increase the recruitment of diverse individuals so that we have a better picture of, oh, this does really work for everyone, right? Not just mm -hmm. your average you know, white person. Research has not done a good job of studying what we call non-weird populations, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so right now I don't have any evidence. Does this work for diverse individuals? But okay. fingers crossed to get enough data that we can answer that question. Yeah, yeah. I really hope that you're able to get a more diverse sample because that's a struggle for our field in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is a question I ask all my guest speakers, which is, as a person of color, can you share with me a challenge that you went through and overcame that you would be willing to share? Sure. All right, which one? Which one? <laughs> um, so I will pick a specific situation versus like a global challenge because yep. I think it is pretty relatable. So as a person of color, we regularly experience microaggressions. Sometimes they happen in day-to-day -day living, right? Sometimes they happen in our training situations. And oftentimes in the moment, we don't know what to do with them. So I, I would like to share um, what I did or what I might not have done that way, maybe someone else out there listening, um, will, it'll resonate with them. So I unfortunately don't speak Tagalog. My, my family was really worried about me like fitting in and being the good American and didn't want they didn't go to college. So they didn't understand that being multilingual is actually good for your brain, right? So, so if you're out there and you're going and decide to raise children, make them multilingual. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, an assumption was made by a supervisor that because I was a person of color and identify, you know, as biracial Filipina, that I must speak Tagalog. So they're going to give me the Tagalog speaking patients. And I'm just magically gonna be able to do a cognitive screen that was available in Tagalog. Okay, well, now we have problem number one. There's the assumption that's being made based on my linguistic abilities. Hold on, I'm gonna take a pause. Your yeah. supervisor didn't ask, no. say, do you speak 
the gala it's no oh oh wow okay yeah yeah fun times Mm. um and so i clearly was not able to assess this person in tagalog i did not know i do not know enough tagalog now and definitely did not at the time to be able to do a cognitive assessment in Tagalog. Now they spoke English and I was able to do a screener um, in English. And in supervision is when I actually discovered that they had done this intentionally and made this assumption. In the moment, I didn't, when I first saw the patient, I didn't know. So in supervision, the supervisor tells me, yeah, oh no, I, I assume that you speak Tagalog, you know, because we've talked a bunch about you being Filipino. And at the time I had no idea what to say to the supervisor. I, in my head, went through all of the things, all of those classic textbook things that we read about people going, do I say something to this person? Do I not say something to this person? If I say something to this person, will it negatively affect my evaluations is it worth it to say something to this person what risk am i but like rapid fire right like now i'm able to actually consciously stream of thought tell you the things i was thinking with the moment it's just so fast at the time i chose not to say something Mm. because i did not want to put myself uh, in the moment the risks outweighed the benefits to me as a trainee you have to make that decision, right? And sadly, that was one of many other tangentially related microaggressions that occurred in that training year. And even though I didn't say something to that person, what got me through that year is that I said something to a colleague to help provide me with emotional support of having to deal with that. And that's okay. It is challenging. And sometimes, though, the risks outweigh the benefits. And when you make that decision that the risks outweigh the benefits, you need to find a good way to cope ahead of time. If there is no way out of that particular situation and it's not a failure on you and you do not have to teach everyone. And that's okay. Hmm. It doesn't make you any less of an advocate. It doesn't make you, you know, a bad person for not having to teach that individual because it doesn't always have to be you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't always have to be you. And well, I mean, I can imagine just the complexities of being microaggressed, how our mind is just racing. We're contemplating, wait, what should, what just, first of all, we're even, we're just shocked. What just happened? Like, really? Did they just say this did, to did me? Just, did this just happen? <laughs> yeah. What do I do with this? And then also the, the implications. Uh, of say, for instance, not knowing one's language. There's emotional content associated with that. Oh, what does it mean if I am uh, Asian and I don't know Mandarin or Chinese or 
I'm Filipino and I don't, or Filipina and I don't know Tagalog. What are the emotional implications with that? So the space to hold that, the space to even process what I do with this information with someone who is not aware, who is, isn't very, I guess, appreciative in terms of diversity and just they have their blinders on. And it's challenging too because I don't know, as you're talking about this, it makes me think about, well, how do we even broach conversations about microaggression? Because I think there's a lot of fear associated with if I say the wrong thing. And so it creates this uh, dilemma of yeah. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Okay. Hmm. Well, anyways, just a thought. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I did have a positive experience with a supervisor in an in instance where I did actually decide to say something. Oh, okay. And... And that supervisor felt safe, which is why I decided to, to say something. So a supervisor had, we had a diverse client come in and the super is the different training location. And the supervisor made the assumption that the patients um, must be fully bilingual based on the type of job that they had. And, and, and completely competent in both languages and I knew that that was incorrect and I was really particularly worried about patient care. So I, and there was a differential power situation, right? And so I asked the supervisor, I was like, that's really an interesting perspective. Could you help me understand that a little bit more? So I took an inquisitive, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna understand that I'm the trainee, that they're, it's not my license, but I wanna learn, okay. So the supervisor explained their viewpoint and I said, okay, I have a slightly different perspective on this based on some articles that I've read. Would it be okay if I shared these with you? And the supervisor said, yes. And we went through the articles and we talked about them. And that person was very amenable to changing the assessment approach based on what I suggested. Now that went swimmingly well, right? <laughs> because that supervisor just happened to be a good human. That could have gone the other way. And sadly, I have actually interacted and chatted with trainees where they tried to have that same conversation and it went the other way. Ugh. But at least they tried. Mm -hmm. So it, it can it can go well. Not always, but it can. Hmm. And it was scary because this person was in an evaluative position of me. But I was like, I think in this case to me, the the risks did not like the, the risk to the patient outweighed the risks to me, in my opinion, hmm. in that hmm. moment. Hmm. That was what I decided. Yeah. Thanks for giving these examples. And do you have any final thoughts? You know, I think we encounter as people of color so many different types of, of situations and we are groomed to believe there is this one way to get us to be successful, to become psychologists, to accomplish X, Y, or Z. And to be culturally responsive and culturally competent, as we all know, is that there is not just one way and we have to give ourselves a little bit of grace 
our field and what we do is not a one size fits all, no matter what we're being told. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that encouragement. Now, how can listeners find you? Sure. So I do have a, a website. And so that is uh, madorneatlab.com. And then as a affiliated faculty at Stanford, I have a Stanford profile that has um, my email address as well. And um, so that's just my first initial M and then my last name, Mador, uh, at stanford.edu. Well, Dr. Mador, thank you so much for your time and the amazing work that you're doing. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We'd love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Sen.